Hi, it's Gary Meese back again with the case against. And we're going to resume talking about Jesse Miskelly's alibis, lack of alibis, his post-confession, post-confession defense strategies, etc. Today's episode. make sure I get it right here okay this is from my book where the monsters go um, I also that's a second volume in a two-volume set the first volume is blood on black uh, there's a combined revised condensed version somewhat more affordable called the case against the West Memphis three killers all three books are available on Amazon and print and Kindle editions and the chapter title on that I'm drawing from today is I hope that y'all don't hate me because I did not do it now uh, Jesse Miskelly Jr. on June 3, 1993, had confessed to police that he, he, Damian Eccles, and Jason Baldwin had, on May 5, 1993, killed uh, Michael Moore, Christopher Byers, and Stevie Branch in a wooded area in West Memphis, Arkansas. A lot of controversy about Really, there's a lot of controversy about just about all aspects of this case. A lot of it somewhat needless and pointless, but it, nonetheless, it exists. Uh, so anyway, after that confession, uh, Miss Kelly, I think, was somewhat surprised to find himself because he tried to... to minimize his own involvement in the crime, I think he was somewhat surprised to find himself charged with uh, capital murder, potentially facing the death penalty for killing these three little boys. His, his role in it, as I say, which he attempted to minimize, not altogether convincingly, but uh, given that uh, he describes defending Michael Moore from uh, Jason Baldwin, who was the one who was had used the knife on the other two boys and while Michael Moore who was uh, really the object of uh, Miss Kelly's uh, violence beat him very very badly to the point these really fatal wounds uh, but he wasn't cut up which gives quite a bit of credence to Miss Kelly's version of events particularly considering he didn't have any special not he wasn't given any special knowledge of the condition of the bodies and in fact the public perception was that all three boys were sexually mutilated based on a story that run in the commercial appeal well Miskelly knew that that wasn't correct and the most reasonable way to explain his, that knowledge that he had that other people didn't have is he was there at the time and knew what had happened with the boys and had participated in it. So in the face of his confession, 
And he had some other confessions floating over his head, such as the Buddy Lucas confession. And he talked to some of his friends and neighbors, not so much detail about this, but there, he had confessed to some other people as well um, prior to being arrested. So he was seeking to establish an alibi. And I'm not going to get in totally into all his alibi today because it's there are two alibis. They're both very complicated just because there's so many actors involved in it. But basically, when you get right down to it, there's nothing to them. Um, and I, I, will get into, I will get into that enough so you'll understand what I'm talking about by the end of this podcast. But, you know, he, he wanted to establish an alibi. But his hopes were doomed from the start, due, his, due largely to his conflicting stories about where he had been and what he had been doing on May 5th. Family and friends attempted to spin alternative versions, but with little or no success. As the implication of his confession became clear, Miskelly, like Eccles and Baldwin, first claimed he spent the evening at home with friends and family. Uh, his father, Jesse Miskelly Jr., told his father, Jesse Miskelly Sr., told reporters on May Monday, June 7th, that his son had spent all of May 5th and at their trailer home in Highland Trailer Park, which is located between very. It's really located very close to Marion, Arkansas. It's just just south of the uh, uh, school grounds, but. Marion appointedly has not incorporated the trailer parks into their city limits, and at least the last I checked, and neither has West Memphis, even though the trailer parks are right there. Uh, the kids in the trailer parks attend Marion schools. They hang out a great deal in West Memphis because it's actually a little bit closer and there's more things to do in West Memphis. Not that there's a lot to do in West Memphis, but there's more things to do in West Memphis. Um, so anyway, little Jesse had sent a letter to his family from the Cross County Jail in Wynn, Arkansas that arrived the afternoon of June 7th stating and by the way, if for those who say that, you know, he's total, you know, totally illiterate, can't write, can't read. Well, he, he was able to read and write letters, so he's not totally, he's not really that literate, but he's not illiterate either. And this letter says, y'all know that I did not do it. I am not that crazy. I watched the news last night and I cry and cry. I hope that y'all don't hate me because I did not do it. I was with Ricky D's the day it happened. I was roughing. He spells it R-U-F-F-I-N. It's roofing, obviously. And Ricky D's was a, a contractor who was doing roofing work. He re refers to him repeatedly through what we're going to be reading today. And when he refers to Ricky D's, that's what he's talking about, the guy he was working for. Uh, his roofing work provided no alibi, though, and... Uh, Miskelly would continue to deny any involvement in the murders to the world at large and his loved ones in particular while confessing repeatedly to police, prosecutors, and his own attorneys. 
and you can see this as some sort of deference to authority if you wish that's one possible interpretation another is, is Miss Kelly simply wanted to have it two ways he wanted to tell the truth but he also didn't want the truth to burnish his image with his particularly his father with the rest of his family and his friends and I think it's an understandable impulse the Miskelly family came under intense scrutiny after news of the arrest broke with Lee Rush who's Miskelly senior's live-in girlfriend saying the family could prove little Jesse worked the day of the murders and went wrestling that night Miss Kelly's father said, it's all false. I think they just made it up. Jesse Jr.'s claim that he and his friends went to Dias about 40 miles away to go wrestling, leaving the trailer park around 7.30 p.m., eventually fell apart despite witnesses who claimed to have been with him. Further obscuring the truth, Miss Kelly claimed in confessions that he had gone wrestling immediately after the murders. In other words, even after the, actually what happens is after, even after the murders are, uh, the, the wrestling alibi is taken apart in court, uh, Miskelly in subsequent confessions after he's been convicted describes going on the wrestling trip. And it's possible for him to have done that. I'm not saying he did. The evidence shows that the trip didn't happen certainly not the way it was described uh, on the other hand did he make a trip to Dias Arkansas to wrestle that evening well it's possible it's not even that unlikely but you know he had time to do that and participate in the the murders it's not there's not a, a conflict between those those two events so it's not really an alibi which is something that a lot of people simply don't understand. Uh, in the Bible confession, for example, which is a confession he gave to his attorney post-conviction, he said he got home from the crime scene around 7.30, got something to eat, and went wrestling. He told defense attorney Dan Stidham that he remembered that evening because, quote, Bill, I guess that's his name, and he's most likely referring to a guy named Bill Cox, threw him so hard that he hit his head on a post. Well, that particular incident was described by other witnesses who also described it happened on that wrestling trip. It probably happened on, I'm sure it must have happened on some wrestling trip. The question is if it happened on that particular day or not. And based on the evidence presented in court, it looked like the wrestling trip didn't happen that day. The week earlier, the week later. In another post-conviction confession given against the advice of his attorneys, uh, and he gave it to prosecutors, but in the presence of his attorneys, his defense attorneys, Miss Kelly said he walked home after the attack, quote, went to Johnny's and went wrestling. He said, we usually leave about eight. Again, he had plenty of time to walk home Murders started happening around 6.30. I'll get into the time frame on this, but he had time to get home by 8 to go wrestling. If there was solid evidence, 
and there's not, that Miskelly went wrestling in Dias. It was no alibi. Uh, Miskelly's time at the crime scene may have been short. It would not have taken long for the three teenagers to subdue, beat, strip, mutilate, bind, molest, and drown the three little boys. If the boys showed up at 6.30 and Miskelly left, say, 15 or even 30 minutes later, he had enough time to walk home and catch a ride to Dias for wrestling. Even moving at a moderate pace with time out for a spate of illness and smashing his bottle of Evan Williams, which is something he described in the later confessions, Miskelly should have traveled the two and a half miles or so in roughly 45 minutes. If gone from the murder scene at 6.45, he could have been home at 7.30. And he described running part of that distance, so, you know, I don't know how he was drunk. Who knows how fast he was running? Maybe he was just jogging along. He uh, described getting ill at this overpass that runs under the interstate, underpass actually, that runs under the interstate that allows you to go from one service road to another and essentially establishes a link under the way to travel without crossing I-55, but traveling under it between the, the Lakeshore Trailer Park on the west and further to the south, closer to West Memphis and Highland, which is where he lived, which would be on the north and to the east. They're not that close. They're not that far apart. You can walk them in, it, you know, a few minutes. On September 24, 1993, Stidham filed a memo stating, spoke with Jesse today via telephone, Ray, why he tells his dad he wasn't at crime scene and why he tells us he was. So this, Stidham had taken note of this phenomenon. And Miskelly's explanation did not explain why he was working at cross purposes with himself, but it, it did present another supposed alibi to Stidham. Stidham noted he has huffed gas for two years and feels, quote, his, half his brain is gone, unquote. He stopped huffing when he heard someone died from it. David Dino Perfetti got him started huffing. And Dino Perfetti is one of his peref... I may not be pronouncing the name right, but perefi. Anyway. Uh, may not be t- pronouncing the name right. Uh, as for the confession, he claimed police started yelling at him and, quote, got his nerves all messed up, unquote. Stidham explained, quote, they told him what to say and he said it on tape. Uh, then Miss Kelly offered a rundown on May 5th for Stidham. He, Dad woke him up at 9 a.m. because Ricky Deese was picking him up for school. He, Deese, and his friend John Darby roofed from nine to noon at a house in West Memphis. From noon to one, quote, lunch at home with dad, unquote. From one to six p.m., quote, roofed house in West Memphis with Ricky and John. They dropped him off at 6.30 at home, unquote. Jesse said he talked with Lee Rush at 6.30 and then from 6.30 to 7.15, quote, 
walked down to Stephanie's house. She wasn't home. Police pulled up in driveway, said someone had assaulted Stephanie's son. Jesse told police that Steph was not home. Walked down to his aunt's house, seen Johnny Hamilton on the way there, went home, and then left to Dias. Now, I'm going to stop. I'm going to continue to quote Stidham here, but briefly, but in a second, but point out that the police uh, visits. Well, the police, he's got the police visits happening at 6.30 to 7.15. That is when the police, police did pull up in the driveway and so forth. Okay, that's correct. Uh, as far as the time frame, it's 7.15 uh, for the police visits for Stephanie's son being slapped. 7.15 to 11.30 p.m. Left home with Johnny Hamilton, Freddie Ravel, Dennis Carter and one of Freddie's friends. Now, there more people were described on, on that wrestling trip. Quite a few people, actually. This version of events was not corroborated by Deese, Darby, Lee Rush, Stephanie Dollar, his father, or the police. Aside from the trip to Dias, it was at odds with most of his alibi witnesses. Uh, in other words, they all can't. They, this is a continuing problem for Miskelly, and honestly, it's a continuing problem for all three of the West Memphis Three. Is they continue to claim alibis, but their alibi witnesses' stories don't match up with the supposed alibis. It's true for Damien. Uh, it's true for Jason Baldwin, and it's definitely true for Miskelly. At his December 10th interview with Stidham and defense psychologist William Wilkins. Miss Kelly was continuing to claim that police coerced him into confessing, supplying some details while he made up other details. While Miss Kelly claimed to have imagined cult rituals, practices such as eating dogs did show up in other accounts of alleged members. So either he independently came up with this information about eating dogs, or uh, this was some sort of folklore that was going around the trailer parks and he was somehow privy to it or he was actually involved in it. Citing his father's longtime legal troubles, his father had been in prison and had was actually at a DWI class or DUI class the evening of May 5th so he was having continuing legal problems if they actually considered, you know, getting picked up on a DUI a legal problem, that's kind of questionable from their standpoint. But legal, you know, legal problem. I think his father had gone to prison for selling uh, pot. Uh, but anyway, his father was familiar with the legal system. Uh, by December, uh, Miss Kelly began claiming the police had it in for his family. Quote, I guess they don't like the Miskellys. That's all I'm wondering. And at that late point, his alibi seem, seemingly consisted of, quote, I didn't have nothing to do with it. I was Ricky D with Ricky Dees, presumably on his roofing job. Fact is, Ricky Dees says that he didn't work till that they got off work in the early afternoon and 
Miskelly didn't work until, you know, 6 or 6.30 that evening at all. And Miskelly later has some alibi witnesses that corroborate that version of things, but, you know, don't help him out because they have conflicting versions of what happened while what he was doing, where he was going, and who he was with that afternoon. Five days later, on December 15th, 1993, in an interview with Richard Offshee, the an expert on false confession and police coercion, and a professor of sociology at the University of California at Berkeley, Miskelly went back over notes from Bridge on his initial interview, repeating his claims that he was elsewhere than Robin Hood Hills. Dr. Offshee asked, It looks to me from these notes that a Ridge asked you a number of questions about, for example, what you did on the day that the three little boys were killed. Do you remember that? Miskelly answered, uh-huh, affirmatively, affirmatively indicating. I guess he shook his head, yes. Uh, or maybe just uh-huh was enough as the affirmatively indicating. But anyway, he was affirmatively indicating. And he says, I was walk working over Ricky D's and West Memphis roofing. He asked me where I was at the day it happened. I told him I was working at uh, Ricky D's. And uh, then he uh, started to say, he said that, uh, that you had something to do with this. And I said, no, because I was working at Ricky D's the day it happened. Dr. Offshee, okay, now here in the notes it says that week you worked as a roofer. Uh, boss Ricky D's uh, rode with John Darby and got off work at 5 p.m. Miss Skelly, uh-huh, affirmatively indicating. Dr. Offshee went home and stayed at home. Now, that's his notes of what you told him that you did that day. Does that sound accurate? Miss Skelly, uh-huh, affirmatively indicating. Dr. Offshee, not only accurate in terms of what you did, but accurate in terms of what you told him. Miss Skelly, right. Later, Miss Skelly added some details. They, uh, they asked me about what the day it happened. I said I was working for Ricky D's and Josh. I said when I got home about five, I was supposed to help my daddy blow the porch, and uh, my daddy had to go to DWI school. And I went to uh, down the street where I babysit, and she wasn't at home. That's Stephanie, Stephanie Dollar. I was going to go to my girlfriend's, then I, which would be Susie Brewer. Then I saw a cop car pull up, and he asked. Uh, I told them they wasn't at home. They went down the street, and he took off, went down the street to see what happened. And this woman slapped her kid, and I was standing back while it was going on. Now, she's, he's talking then about a, a woman who had slapped, for apparently the second day in a row, had slapped a, a boy on a bicycle, Stephanie Dollar's son, uh, in the trailer park. Ms. Kelly claimed he told police this account, though that was not reflected in their notes. Um, they didn't, they didn't believe me. Then Miss Skelly told Dr. Offshee an odd little story. That morning I saw three kids by a bridge going to work with Ricky D's and I told them and a, that a cop, he stopped on a bridge talking to one of them. I couldn't see who they was because they was too far back. I seen three kids. I couldn't tell them what they was wearing or not, or not cause, you know, we was too far from them. Then that's when they start asking question, me the question, you know, and I told them that 
couldn't tell what they was wearing or what they looked like. And he said, well, these three boys, they went to school that day and they got out. But I was working at Ricky D's and I didn't get off until five. And I didn't get into it here, but basically what this comes down to is Ricky Miskelly's account continued to be significantly at odds with most of his defense witnesses, especially D's, Stephanie Dollar, and uh, Jesse's girlfriend, Susie Brewer. Susie said she spent most of the afternoon with Jesse after he got off work early, around one or so. Uh, Stephanie Dollar described seeing him. She was, he was doing some babysitting for her around, you know, in the earlier, the mid-afternoon. Mid and Ricky D said that, you know, they didn't work till five or six that day, which he's inconsistent on that, big deal. You know, you work all day, and it's sometime later. Did you work all day? Yeah, what time did you get home? Got home at five, got home at 6.30. You might not really remember that, but you would might remember working all day. And, you know, that kind of time discrepancy is understandable. But to say you worked all day and then stayed home, and then you, then you come back, as Muskelly does, and says, well, you know, I, I, uh, I worked until 6.30, and then I go on this wrestling trip, and the people, people that he's describing this going on, you know, wrestling trip, they don't agree with him. Uh, the people that see him around the trailer park don't agree with his version of events of getting home late that day and that's this is his early alibi it changes over time just as Eccles confession changes over time and uh, Baldwin's stories change over time I'm trying to determine if I should go on. I think I will do that. This is another chapter here. And if I get tired, I'll just stop. It's this chapter. He could have been with them, but he did not have anything to do with it, I don't believe. That's Jesse Muskelly's father talking. Uh, the fate of the West Memphis Three was taken out of local hands when Judge David Burnett agreed to motions for changes of venue for both trials. Miskelly's trial was moved to Clay County. The Baldwin-Eccles trial was moved to Jonesboro, Arkansas. Jury selection began in the Miskelly trial on June, January 19, 1994. Miskelly's family, neighbors, and friends made a strong and somewhat organized attempt to establish an alibi for Jesse for May 5th. Stephanie Dollar soon after the arrest, recalled that the police had been called out to Highland after her child had been slapped. <coughs> Copies of the report quickly made the rounds of the tight-knit community. Uh, Ms. Kelly had a parade of witnesses to testify he was on the scene at about 6.30 for the police call. Some witnesses supported the claim that he'd gone on the wrestling trip to Dias soon afterwards. Uh, attempts to put him at the police visit did not pan out. The officers who answered the calls knew Miss Kelly and did not see him at the scene, they testified. Over a dozen people, including Stephanie Dollar, Susie Brewer, Jennifer Roberts, Christy Jones Moss, Charles Ashley, James Niecase, Lewis Hoggard, Dennis Carter, Fred Ravel, 
Roger Jones, Kevin Johnson, Keith Johnson, and Johnny Hamilton testified about supposed alibis. Uh, Jesse Miskelly Sr. also gave testimony claiming he had gotten out of DW, as he called it, DWI school around 7, that he drove home and spoke to Jesse Jr. at 7.15, a bit before he left to go wrestling. Miskelly Sr. testified he left his job at Jim's repair shop, which is over pretty close to Highland, at 5.30 because they wanted me to be there early to make the payment. Class started at 6, and it was supposed to have lasted until 8, but they let us out at 7 o'clock. I came straight home. It was about 15 minutes after when I got home. Well, I seen all those police cars were leaving out as I was coming in the trailer park, and I got scared they were going to get me for driving on a suspended license. So I hurried up and went home. As I say, uh, you know, following the niceties of the law is not exact, was not exactly a high priority for the Miskelly family. Uh, Jesse still, you know, last time he got in trouble, he got in trouble for driving without a suspended license, with, with a suspended license. Uh, or without a license. I don't know if it was suspended. He just didn't have a license. He gets stopped once, twice, three times in the space of a couple of months. Um, and my son Jesse came in and I asked him what was going on and he said the police were called out because of Connie Molden had pulled Stephanie's little boy Cody off the bicycle by the hair of the head and slapped him and they called the police out for that and then when Bobby Jr. come in Stephanie's husband him and Connie's husband Melvin got into it almost well they almost got into a fight down there and they called the police back out there again and they were leaving out as I was going in about 7.15. A lot of fun in the trailer park, huh? Uh, Miskelly Sr. testified Jesse, quote, left about 7.30 to go to Dias, Arkansas to wrestle, naming off, and then he named off uh, Johnny Hamilton, Freddie Ravel, Josh Darby, little Dennis Carter, and there was some other guy, Bill or some, something or other, I don't know his name. He admitted he did not see them leave. Uh, under cross-examination by prosecuting attorney Brent Davis, Ms. Kelly was asked about statements that his son may have been on the, may have been at the crime scene. Asked if little Jesse had been with Eccles and Baldwin, Jesse Ms. Kelly Sr. had told KAIT-TV on June 7th, which is four days after the arrest, I don't believe he did it because, yeah, he could have been with him, but he did not have anything to do with it, I don't believe. Uh, Miss Kelly Sr. explained, that was before I found out, that was before I went to work on the case and found out that he was not there. I didn't have proof or anything. I said he may have been there, I do not know. I said, but if he was there, he didn't have anything to do with killing those boys. The defense had a receipt showing Big Jesse attended the DWI class on May 5th. Okay, so he, this part of the story sounds good. Jesse, Big Jesse went to his DWI class. Uh, Gloria Wilson, who conducted the classes, testified they ended, quote, anywhere from 7.30 to 8. But on this particular one, they ran closer to 8 because I was being evaluated. She testified the May 5th class stayed at least as late as 7.45. She produced a sign-up sheet showing Miskelly Sr. attended. 
Years later, Miskelly Sr. laid out a timeline on Jesse Jr.'s alibi for May 5th, and it runs like this. Okay, well, backing up just a second. Basically, they bring in that Gloria Wilson, who might have a little more credibility than Jesse Miskelly Sr. He claims he got out early, saw all these events at uh, Trailer Park, and saw saw Jesse, little Jesse, before, and these guys he was going off to wrestle with. And Gloria Wilson said they didn't get out till any time before 7.45, which pretty well messes up Miskelly Sr.'s timeline. He certainly didn't see police leaving them because they, they were through with their business there at, by 7.45. Uh, and he... Yeah, well, I'm, I'm hitting a time lag here. It's getting late in the day. My brain's starting to go dead. Years later, I want to go into the Miskelly Sr. timeline on the alibi, and I may call it for the day on this. But I, after going through this, it, uh, this is Miskelly Sr.'s alibi list. At 9 a.m., Miskelly Sr. woke Jesse to go to work with Ricky Deese and Josh Darby. From 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., Jesse was roofing with Dees and Darby. At 2 p.m., Dees' wife saw Jesse in Highland. Jesse was with Susie Brewer from 7 from 3:30 to 7 p.m., including from 5 to 6:30 at Stephanie Dollar's. At 6:30, Jesse and Susie went outside to see the police call and were seen by Charles Ashley, Susie Brewer, Jennifer Roberts, Stephanie Dollar, Christy Jones, Dennis Carter and Lewis Hoggard, who talked with them. At 6.45, Jesse and Susie went to Johnny Hamilton's. They walked back to the Miskelly home where they encountered Jennifer and Christy. At 7.15, Jesse walked Susie to Stephanie Dollars. He returned home to get a wrestling match as Miskelly Sr. was arriving home from DWI school. Between 7.15 and 7.30, Jesse left for Dias with Freddie Ravel, Bill Cox, Roger Jones, Dennis Carter Jr., and Johnny Hamilton. At 8, Jesse and his friends met Keith Johnson at the Exxon station near Turrell. From 8 to midnight, Jesse was wrestling with Bill Cox, Dennis Carter, Roger Jones, Johnny Hamilton, and Keith Johnson. Now, the problems with that timeline, that's the Miskelly alibi. And if they could only gotten all the witnesses to, to line up for that and, and not have problems with receipts showing the wrestling trip occurred the other day and police saying uh, Miskelly wasn't at the scene, not a bad alibi, alibi attempt as it goes. But the problem was they had those problems. They had problems with people giving conflicting versions of what Miskelly was doing that afternoon uh, in the trailer park. Harmless stuff. I'm not suggesting he, that anybody was saying he was doing anything bad, but I'm just saying that he was, oh, he was with so-and-so. Oh, he was with so-and-so. He, oh, he was with so-and-so. And, and we're going, you know, I will get into that in a bit. 
And it's one thing to have conflicting stories. It's another thing to present them to a jury. Uh, you can thank Dan Stenen for that problem. Uh, the problems with that timeline stem from its consistent contradiction with evidence and conflicting statements from witnesses. And I'm going to stop there because it, it goes on. It, we, I've read, I've gone on for quite a bit, and we're going to go into the conflicting versions of, of uh, events surrounding Miss Skelly and his doings on May 5th. And it's somewhat complicated just because there's so many different characters involved. As you, you know, you read that list of names, well, a lot of those people testified. And some of them concurred with some other people or with the official version, and some of them didn't. And it got, gets to be quite complicated. And you're never going to see a breakdown of this and say, a, West, uh, a Paradise Lost movie because it's just too boring, too complicated. Kind of like the phone call vers girls' stories. It's kind of complicated. Not that complicated, but, you know, they're, not only are there multiple people telling stories that don't totally agree exactly, but even the same people will tell stories that vary somewhat over time. However, when you get with the phone call girls, you, even over the space, span of decades, uh, their stories don't offer an alibi to, uh, to Amy and Eccles. If uh, Miskelly had just been, if the Miskelly defense had been more selective about their alibi witnesses, and had not overreached with uh, claims about uh, wrestling receipts and the police call and some other things. They at least may have been able to create some doubt in the, in, you know, a shorter list of witnesses who actually agreed with each other. They might have at least been able to, that would have been at least a credible, on the face of it, defense for Miss Kelly, but by overreaching by having the witnesses show up with yellow armbands showing their love and support for little Jesse you know it really tainted their testimony that tainted their testimony the fact they couldn't agree with each other tainted their testimony the fact that Miss Kelly senior makes these claims that he got home at a certain time and it Gloria Wilson says, oh, no, he couldn't have done that because he didn't get out of school, uh, DWI school, till 745, which means that, you know, even if he hopped immediately in his car and drove right home, he wouldn't, got, wouldn't have gotten home much before, say, 8 o'clock, depending on where it was in West Memphis. So, there you go. Uh, I remind people that Bob Ruff's oxygen uh, specials this weekend. I don't know if I'm going to get into uh, some sort of detailed analysis critique of that or not. Uh, it seems like I'm, it's almost wasting my time, and that people are going to people watching that are going to end up believing what's presented to them, no matter how fallacious it is, no matter how much information is left out, 
or is represent misrepresented um, we just don't know so uh, you know I don't know what it's going to look like apparently Bob Ruff doesn't have a good idea what it's going to look like he hasn't he hasn't uh, seen the final edits either uh, his uh, producer who's interestingly enough uh, is named Domini which is a very unusual name the only other person I know of named Domini is Domini Tier, but his his producer Domin is Domini Huffman. So that's <laughs> it's very strange. But she's she's got good credits, and I'm not familiar with her work. But you know, it, she's certainly professional. I wouldn't expect less from Oxygen than some sort of slick product and. Uh, Ruff, I'm sure, was quite willing to go along with that just to get the bucks and the recognition. So we'll see what happens. You know, the truth, the truth is really uh, a lot more irregular, rough, and incomplete than what gets presented in a lot of these podcasts, and particularly with with Ruff. He just it's the same way with the Paradise Lost movies and what he loves west of memphis which is really just it's like a night it's a beautifully shot movie and all that but it's totally fallacious in terms of its presentation of material i mean it get got got the names of the defendants correct that's about it <coughs> as far as its interpretation of events it couldn't be more wrong and um you know, brings up just, you know, the ridiculous Hobbs family secret and uh, from a couple of kids who had it in for Hobbs' nephew. Uh, those guys both spent time in prison later. In fact, at one point, the Hobbs family secret guys and the two convicted rapists who came up with the four perp theory, all those guys were in Arkansas prison system all at the same time. And these are your alternative suspect, main witnesses for your alternative suspect theories in the late West Memphis Three canon. So we'll leave it at that. Looks like I've gone to 42 minutes, which is not a bad length. And even with this little bit of babbling at the end, I hope I made more sense than I often do. Uh, best wishes to all of you. Have a good weekend. Uh, I'll be, and as I say, I will be watching the rough program, and I may comment on it. I may do something on it. I'll just have to see. I really don't want to get into a tit for tat debating thing with one-sided me ranting at Bob Ruff on my podcast about all the stuff he gets wrong. Uh, there are other people who are doing that. I'm really more interested in presenting the facts of the case and just let them sort of speak for themselves. However, there are times that I've criticized Ruff publicly in the past and I'll continue to do so. Um, I'm really just curious to see what he comes up with, and I'm not expecting much. I don't think he's going to come up with anything substantive. He might come up with uh, 
I would suspect he's going to come up with more of some stuff that's been thrown around for years about Terry Hobbs that really doesn't have a lot of substance to it. You know, he sold a truck. He moved out of town. Give me a break. Anyway, uh, that's it. Thank you.